Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, May 30th, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is blues musician Jerry Hunt of the blues band The Dig Three. Jerry Hunt is a blues player adept on guitar, bass, harmonica, and electric and acoustic mandolin. He lives and works in Chicago and since 2004 has been a utility player with Nick Moss and the Flip Tops. He records for the Blue Bella label, a logo that's kept busy documenting, documenting the blues revival of the early 21st century. He's played on many Blue Bella releases and also has credits as a producer and engineer on some sessions. In 2007, he released his debut as a band leader since way back, carrying the flame that Yank, Rachel, Johnny Young, and Carl Martin ignited years ago. Since way back also shows that Hunt is an impressive vocal stylist, by turns rowdy, good-natured, and soulful. Hunt was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, but his family moved to Rockford, Illinois when he was three. He had a happy middle-class childhood. A nursery school teacher told his mother, Jerry has a great love for music and dancing. He tried alto saxophone in fifth grade, but hearing Jimi Hendrix's The Wind Cries Mary in seventh grade was a turning point. He collected everything Hendrix in high school and got the blues bug from a compilation called Story of the Blues. The Dig Three is a new, exciting, and entertaining Blues Roots All-Star Trio, consisting of the supremely soulful vocalist-guitarist Andrew Duncanson of Kilbourne Alley Blues Band fame, harp master and teacher Ronnie Shellist, and multi-instrumentalist Jerry Hunt, who has been the not-so-secret weapon behind. Nick Moss, Corey Dennison, and much more. The Dig Three on their debut self-titled album, The Dig Three, released in 2022, truly play deep blues with a feeling and know how to really dig into a steady groove. It's so refreshing to hear a group of young, talented, good friends playing killer old-school blues with unique originality, taste, subtlety, and emotion, and all while having an absolute blast doing it. This is some of the most low-down, raw, wild, and dirty blues I've heard in a long time. Think Big John Rentschler's Chicago Blues Classic, Maxwell Street Blues from 1969. Unfettered by convention, 
whiskey vocals, masterful harmonica, and keen original songs. They stay tethered to grooves only possible when the rhythm section is one person. Walking the tightrope between urgency and ease, the Dig 3 creates roots music with power and subtlety, perfected by decades of house parties and honky-tonks. It is my pleasure to welcome to the one-person rhythm section of the Dig 3, Jerry Hunt. Hello, Jerry. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you uh, having me on. You bet. You bet. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I, I would tell you, I love all kinds of blues, just like I love all kinds of music. And uh, I love everything mm -hmm. from bigger bands with horns and and harp players backing a singer. And I also really love blues that is pared down, kind of an unadulterated, raw, harsh, and rootsy sound. And so I love early blues artists right. accompanied only by themselves on guitar, piano, or artists in other genres like uh, the White Stripes or Scott Byram. Uh, as soon as I heard the, uh, oh, sure. yeah. the Dig 3, it immediately appealed to me uh, as well for a lot of similar reasons. So mm -hmm. let me ask you, how would you characterize the sound of the band? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, I would characterize it as definitely three seasoned musicians who love Chicago blues in all of its forms and, um, and love to create new, uh, new tunes with an old feel. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, we um as as much as i think we're all you know uniquely talented i think that this particular project is really more than the sum of its parts like it's even though andrew's my favorite singer ronnie's my favorite harmonica player i really think that like the three of us together is kind of a, a unique and uh really enjoyable um mixture of influences and styles okay well maybe we could talk a little bit about the you know who are the key artists that are part of the band's dna sure so um the principal songwriter and vocalist is andrew duncanson whose uh project the kilborn alley band has been around for almost two decades now um they recorded for blue bella records and then their own uh label Run It Back Records and uh, received Blues Music Award nominations, toured overseas and all that. And uh, Andrew's just a fantastic singer and songwriter um, and, and, a, and a great guitar player too. So he's kind of the, um, I, I don't want, he, he is such a, a distinctive voice that that's usually the first thing people say is, wow, you know, what a great singer whenever mm -hmm. he's involved with anything. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then on harmonica uh, is Ronnie Shellist, who is a dear friend of mine for several decades or two decades now. Um, mm -hmm. And he is one of Honer um, harmonica's top clinicians and instructors. Um, he has his own business harmonica one, two, three, and um, puts on harmonica teaching events all year long um, with a couple of bigger ones called the Global Global Harmonica Summit. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, those fe feature the likes of Charlie Musselwhite. Um, mm -hmm. I think he had Kim Wilson do one, you know, so that's kind of, uh, he kind of provides a, um, a forum where people get to talk to their harmonica heroes which is i think is really really cool anyway he's a fantastic player uh, beyond all that all the teaching he's a fantastic player he knows all the vocabulary of all of his influences but really has his own style um without you know uh straying too far from the tradition mm -hmm. um so and, and the reason, you know, 
and the thing that's kind of odd about the whole thing is that I also play harmonica and kind of one of the unique things about the band is that it stems from this idea that I, I started toying with years ago um, of having like a real low down blues band, like a Maxwell street style blues band, but featuring two harmonicas um, on some numbers, because I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that, you know, like, even though there isn't a whole lot of that kind of thing recorded, I'm sure that happened, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and continues to happen in jam sessions or whatever. It's just, it's rare, I think, to find two harmonica players who can play together and sound good at it. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's actually part of our live uh, shtick that we kind of apologize to the audience for having two harmonicas. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of tongue in cheek because we know it sounds good and, and we have fun doing it. Well, I think that, you know, you, you make a really good point about the instrument. I mean, I, you know, you could very easily, even if you were simultaneously improvising, um, you know, mm -hmm. kind of staying out of each other's way, uh, creating some sort of a contrapuntal environment, not unlike uh, a traditional uh, uh, jazz group, you know, where you've got yep. three different, uh, you know, trumpet, uh, trombone, clarinet improvising simultaneously. And um, yeah, I don't see any reason why that couldn't have happened at all with with uh, with harmonica players and as many as the, there are around. Yeah, that's yeah. And, and the Dixieland reference is exactly, you know, what I had in my head. And, you know, they're mm -hmm. also, you know, in Western swing, you see twin violins, you see, mm -hmm. it's kind of this offshoot of, you know, pop orchestras and dance orchestras and all that. But like you said, with harmonica, particularly, uh, just because of the nature of the instrument, and it being a bulkier, more accessible kind of instrument, I feel like, you know, a lot of players can't really i think it's, it's less common it's more common for two guitar players to play together than it is mm -hmm. for two harmonica players let's just leave it at that yeah you don't um, see so, it very often so i could see that there isn't you know there isn't really a direct uh sort of frame of reference for that except in other genres like you mentioned uh so mm -hmm. you know it's kind of fun to be doing something um somewhat that feels new it feels new, even if it is. Maybe what you're going to have to come up with is a, a blues version of dueling banjos. <laughs> you know, you something... know, it's funny you should say that. One of the, yeah. I mean, there is kind of a tradition of that. Ronnie and I, a long time ago, back uh, when we were young pups living in Denver, uh, we did put up a video on YouTube when he was first starting his career. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's called dueling harmonicas or something like that, or two uh -huh. harmonica boogie something along those lines. And that's, that's more of like a train, you know, your kind of train effect, train sound um, kind of a thing rather than like on a shuffle or something. Yeah, but. sure. Sure. Well, I mean, and then, you know, and if you go back into the past, of course, there are harmonica bands. I would, one that came to mind right. was the harmonic cats, you of know, course, which Jerry was, uh, yep. yeah. Yeah. And the, and that, uh, and that sort of thing. And, uh, I remember my grandfather used to play harmonica and he used to tell me that he, uh, he always liked it because he could, you know, he could always put it, he put it in his pocket and take it with him wherever he went, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah, and yeah. always have access to it. And it's a, uh, it's a interesting instrument, uh, from that standpoint, but it also, because of, uh, the role that it had in the blues, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there are certainly jazz harmonica players, and we also right. find it in cowboy music. I don't think we find yep. it so much in contemporary country western music, but certainly it was a big part of you know cowboy music, uh, mm -hmm. you know, back in the early days and that. But I I I will welcome your experiments and look forward to anything you might try. <laughs> I think I think I mean I think that you know that, that, that you know it's like when you talk about you know, you're doing, you know, new songs, but in an old way, it also might be a place for you to do some old songs in a new way or new songs right. in a new way, you know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. introduce, mm -hmm. introduce kind of some of these ideas that might, uh, uh, well, it might shake up the quote unquote establishment, like, well, no one's ever done it that way before, you know, kind of thing. And, but, well, uh, yeah, I mean, you can also you can kind of point it also could be a real turn on too, because if it creates some kind of a sound that 
is unique and different, then I think that's uh, uh, a great a great idea to do. And I, you know, I think that, you know, I like I like your you know your statement about doing new tunes in an old way, um, but we also we don't necessarily always want to treat the blues just like we don't always want to treat well any music as strictly museum pieces. You know, right. it, it, it should also be a forward thinking kind of music. And I think that even when we do it in the in an old way, you know, we're, not only are we preserving sounds from the past, but in effect, we're keeping that old way fresh and on the front. Burn. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you can point you can also I can also point to the fact that I'm I'm the rhythm section like I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm playing guitar and drums and or bass six and drums and that's mm -hmm. that's something that's odd um you know that's that's not really something that happens no that's a, that is a that is a unique uh, is a unique setup and well and you even did a one man band for a while right i still do quite a bit oh you do um, okay yeah 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 um it's actually rare that the three plays together. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I play quite a bit solo and have been developing that for years. And, um, you know, I, I part of the, you could say part of the evolution of the dig three was not only the circumstances under which it came together, but the fact that I had evolved enough with what I had been doing with the one man band that we can pull off the tunes that we do. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it kind of, it was kind of a nice uh, nexus of all of those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's always just kind of nice that you, uh, you know, you can have that strong foundational core and then just kind of add the, uh, the, uh, the other aspect, add, add to it rather than right. necessarily mm -hmm. uh, divide it up. I think that's really kind of a cool idea. Well, yeah. um, well, I've got sort of an academic philosophical question for you. Since sure, you're a blues, sure. a blues musician and been experienced with the music and <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Pardon. Oh, there we go. That's what I get for inhaling my own saliva. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm really curious to your viewpoint about the blues itself as a musical mm. style. Is okay. it truly an international style or is it a regional style that has just been imitated internationally? Now, when I say that, I think about all the various pockets of blue styles within the United States and Canada, mm -hmm. as well as uh, many English blues musicians and sure. blues influenced English rock bands. Right. Well, I think, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this work. Um, it's called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. Yes, I, I have read it. I've also read his book on his book called Leaving the Delta, which is also very interesting. Right. We're talking about Elijah Wald here. Too, you right? bet. Elijah Wald. That's right. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I loved his premise in the book <clears throat> that, you know, the notion of blue, the the notion of a blues man was mainly a marketing construct, right? Mm -hmm. Like any professional musician could play whatever the dancers wanted to, to, to dance to, or the, the event called for. Um, the, I like that. And then he also said that, um, you know, really the advent of recorded music was, was meant that people in other places could copy regional styles. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think we've come to a point now where blues has become a, an international thing. I mean, because not only because of the mobility of the recordings, but the mobility of the people as well. I mean, we've got U.S. as as far back as the '60s, we've had U.S. musicians going over and living uh, in Europe or or even Japan, or I can even think uh, Sweden. Um, and bringing with them that music and getting, uh, you know, local folks interested in that. And then they start playing with that. I mean, I myself am, have uh, played a couple times now with a, a bass player and a drummer in Luxembourg. And, uh, you know, they're great. They've got great feel. They've got big ears. They love the music. And, you know, we have lots of fun. So I don't, 
I don't really, um, as much as I would love for it to be um, a regional style and something that you could could truly discover on your own, I think that it has um, it, it has expanded um, to beyond those regional influences. Now, having mm -hmm. said that, there is nothing like going to Mississippi, going to the uh, Clarksdale or the Juke Joint Festival or or Reds down there just on a, a regular night and hearing that music played by guys who either live there or have lived there um, or were born there or live there now and mm -hmm. are learning that music in that place. Mm -hmm. I will also say that, you know, it's pretty hard for people outside of Chicago, for musicians outside of Chicago to really nail the way that you know we play it here mm -hmm. um i've i've heard great you know recordings by guys who don't live in the city but there is something special about that and I, and I could go for the same you know i could say the same for texas blues and the west coast guys too like you mm -hmm. know I, I don't know if it's the climate or the food or a combination of everything but it just feels different like i i don't feel the same vibe on when i hear like some really good west coast guys play some roy brown or or, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, some R&B or jump like that here. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody really goes for that here. There are bands who do it here, uh, and they do it well. But still, like, those guys out there are really good at it. And it sounds good, and it feels good. And and, and you could say the same uh, for Texas blues and uh, Louisiana blues as well. You know, I think I think you're onto something there, you know, and, and a lot of it, I think, has to do, too, with whether the musician you're listening to is, say, a touring musician who gets around or someone who mm -hmm. is pretty much strictly local and they might stick with, uh, you know, what they came up with and, and what, the, you know, what they what they learned. Uh, right. Although I find it interesting, it's like uh, uh, I've had uh, Aaron Harp, who's uh a uh, blues uh, singer and guitarist out of Boston, but she plays in that Piedmont finger picking style. And she actually right. does a lot of teaching, which she said she learned from her father. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but the, uh, you know, I think what it really boils down to is what Thomas Friedman has told us that is, the world is flat and that uh, <laughs> we can, because we can access anything anywhere anymore. And right. uh, and I don't care where you're from, you can listen to and experience, you know, those kinds of sounds and that kind of music. There are different flavors, so I, I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. I interviewed a, uh, oh, come on, her name's escaping me right now, but she, uh, her father owned uh, a, a, a prominent uh, uh, nightclub. Uh, R&B and blues nightclub out in uh, the LA area. And she told me when she was 11 years old, she used, she used to uh, kick off. Uh, she would kick off big Joe Turner's band, you know, I mean, and, and, right. and that, and that kind of, you know, uh, sound and Lowell Fulson and, and uh, Roy Brown, you know, those kind of sounds that central Avenue kind of sound is very yeah. different from what you get from a South side Chicago sound, which is very, very different from the, that Baton Rouge, um, uh, uh, try to think, um, well, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, all of, you know, Louisiana mm -hmm. swamp blues yeah. or whatever they want to call it. I think sometimes yeah. these labels, labels maybe get, get a little meaningless. I mean, they're there because record companies like to be able to identify who's buying what and what's, you know, selling by. Having yeah. These and kind of you know, labels. for the labels make it easier for fans too. I mean, I, sure I, I kind of despise labels and being, you know, uh, autocratic about what is and what isn't, and what aren't, you know, because at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, do you like the music? Yeah. But, you know, do you enjoy this person's live show? And you bought the record because of that. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody just starting out i mean you know i i still i remember the pre-internet days and i had to go to a cd store and i, I would go for the blues bin and i'd look mm -hmm. through there and you know so um there's that i don't think it's as much maybe it's not as much of a thing but i guess i guess that version of that would be like maybe somebody hears a song they like and then 
when they do so little digging, well, it's, well, Spotify considers them blues. Okay, well, mm-hmm. what else is blues? You know, so yep. I think that's that's where we are with that. Yeah, you want to trigger all the correct algorithms so that you uh, keep <laughs> keep getting a steady diet of what you've liked in the past. I, well, I, think... I totally, I totally admit with the Dig Three album, I when I submitted it for distribution, I made no hesitation in tagging the black keys and white stripes in the description sure uh, because i said well you know let's just let's just do this yeah saw some records here and (laughs) see what happens yeah well no and i don't you know and i think i think you know you know because human people are fickle anyway i mean you know Mm -hmm. it's sort of like it's sort of like you know when you when you tell people you play music oh what kind of or like when i tell people uh used to tell people i I taught music at the university. Well, mm-hmm. what kind of music? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, right. well, in an academic setting, we primarily focus on the music of Western civilization and, uh, and uh, you know, meaning classical music and, and Western European music. And then, you know, sometimes we also offer classes in jazz and rock and roll, you know, but, but, but that would be the question that would often get asked because I, it, it's sort of funny with some people, the music that they like to listen to is almost like a second religion. I guess it's sort of like, you know, what mm-hmm. football what football team you root for. Now, you're a Wisconsin guy, but you've lived in Chicago <laughs> long enough. You're probably not a Packer <laughs> fan anymore, are you? Well, uh, my parents are actually stockholders. Uh, my oh, sister okay. And I so bought I guess. Bought, <laughs> so, bought them stock gen- so let me just say this. I, you know, my, 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 my parents breed, bleed green and gold. However, I did grow up in the era of 1980 to 1985 Chicago Bears. Uh-huh. So I've kind of conflicted about the whole thing. I, you know, I love, I, you know, my parents go to Lambeau at least once a year and, uh, you know, and have dinner at the Hall of Fame or whatever it is. But the, um, you know, I, I would love for the Bears to have a good team again. And I love, you know, every time the Bears play the Packers. Um, but as I said, my loyalties are somewhat conflicted in that regard. But well, I will say I have enjoyed the Aaron Rodgers. Okay, there you go. Well, it's been, you know, I, was great I, I mean, it, I, I make that, I mean, kind of a joke, because we do know that the Packers is a religion in Wisconsin. But Yeah, uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> but um uh, I think sometimes people get that way with music too, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I sometimes would get that vibe from my students, like in my music appreciation class or my jazz history or class, and mm-hmm. you know, and they they'd always have to say, "Well, I say we have any questions," and they say, "Yeah, Doctor Hurst, have you ever heard of?" And they name a band, you know, and it'd be something. I say, "No, I haven't. Tell me about them." And 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 it's like it's almost like a missionary proselytizing, you know. Oh, I got to tell yeah. you, yeah. Because, I mean, people do develop an attachment to bands or brands of, you know, you're either a Pepsi person or a Coca-Cola person or you're, a, you know, or whatever, a Ford person or a Chevy person, you know, those kinds of things exist. And mm-hmm. I suppose with music, it's like, like, uh, you know, yeah, I only I listen to jazz or I listen to blues or I listen to, you know uh whatever kind of music and then there's some sort of uh almost preconditioned assumption about what kind of person you, you are or they are based on their musical taste but yeah i definitely think that's that's something for sure yeah, yeah. well i had an interesting conversation on uh, thursday i interviewed derek Procell, and uh we got talking about blues and uh i don't know if you know derek or not uh, no uh-uh. oh well he's he's actually He's also a Wisconsin guy. He's from Milwaukee originally, but he's lived he's okay. lived kind of on the uh, in the northern suburbs of Chicago. That's uh, mm-hmm. where he lives now. But he's done quite a bit of recording and a lot of writing, uh, uh, not only for his own band uh, but also other bands. But we were talking about uh, uh, you know all these all this various kind of. Uh, you know, stylistic differences and approaches and, and, uh, and, uh, and now I forget my whole train of thought just left the depots. <laughs> we'll move on and maybe it'll come back to me. But, but uh, um, I think that, uh, you know, to get back to the original question about the blues, maybe all music is getting internationalized. Uh, you know, it's like, 
when I open up iTunes and go to browse and you can go down to genres and, and and there's all these international musics that you can access and uh, Mm -hmm. which wasn't always, always the case. So that's very true. Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, always kind of an interesting way to look at and think about music and, and ways that you can infuse different sounds. Um, all right. Well, now that you released uh, an album in August, do you have another mm-hmm. recording project planned or in the works? We sure do. Um, we already, it's, it's in the mixing stage right now. Uh, we do have a, uh, a GoFundMe to, uh, finish this one like we did for the last one dear listener and um so you know we're we're in the process of finishing that up we hope actually to release it about the same time as last year the end of august that seemed to work out well in terms of promotional considerations and this that and the other thing so yeah we're we're tentatively looking at that we have some artwork concepts that are moving forward and you know we're 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 we got another one and it's it's going to be great i think um the uh, if it's possible we went both backward and forward from the first album i i think we went okay. a little deeper um into some themes and some moods and then we also went like a little bit more contemporary uh at the same time so mm-hmm. um i i just listened to some of the rough mixes again um the other day and was just really enjoying it and I, I can't wait till the mixes are finished and we we already have a sequence in mind so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the finished product on this one excellent well that's good to hear that you guys are coming up with a with another effort uh how about uh how about gigs for the summer where are you going to be appearing this summer um this summer the dig three doesn't have anything on the books actually oh uh, yes okay um ronnie uh lives uh, andrew lives down in champaign and ronnie moved back to colorado for some family uh, considerations uh we just did a little two-day run of some gigs in the midwest in um you know quad cities and kansas mm-hmm. city um but you know we are we are trying to put a couple things together we may we may have a weekend in colorado coming up um so uh you know we'll see uh as for myself i'll be um i have three trips uh, planned overseas with uh, Corey Denniston band. And then we have a couple of, of dates coming up as well. And I'll just, I'll be kicking around the Midwest doing, and then Chicago doing my solo thing a lot. Okay. Um, so. Well, yeah. I would encourage you and, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, plug our own local uh, blues festival that occurs uh, in August up here in, uh, in Waukesha. We have the Waukesha Rotary sponsors a mm. blues fest. It's usually the first or second weekend in August. And uh, uh, it's a two day event and they, uh, 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 I've always enjoyed it when I've gone, they'll have local groups and then they'll usually have mm-hmm. uh, two different headliners. Uh, now is that, is that, that's in like a big banquet hall, right? No, no, uh, you you might be thinking about now. There is the Wisconsin Blues Harmonica Festival that's in a in a in a place called the Suburban Bourbon, which is in Muskego, uh, and a David Miller, who's a, a, an acquaintance of mine and a and a blues harp player. He's he's kind of the one behind that. But the one I'm talking about mm-hmm. is in. Uh, uh, it's the Waukesha Rotary Club, and they have it in a park under a big circus tent. They'll put up a big oh, tent okay. yeah, so it can go one. on rain or shine. And, oh, that's nice. Yeah, uh, yeah it's outdoors, but, um, you know, I mean, they, they'll have really nice uh, sound lights, everything. They had, uh, mm. I went, uh, let's see, they had Sue Foley was the headliner the night that I went. And, oh great! Uh, I also discovered another uh, Milwaukee-based band called the Altered Five Blues. Oh band. yeah, mm-hmm. really great uh, group, and uh, so that's always fun. But uh, well, anyway, but uh, kind of getting back to uh, you know the new material and things that you're mm-hmm. you're recording now. Is it true Andrew writes most of the original music that you guys do, or or yeah he. Yeah, it's a collaborative up to a point. Uh, we, you know, Andrew mainly focuses on the lyrics and then 
has a rough he usually has a rough idea for the style of song he wants there have been a few occasions where you know based on my limitations i've made suggestions or or had different ideas about how a certain sh song should be approached approached uh, from a musical standpoint mm -hmm. uh, and you know we all kind of come up with our own little individual parts there are have usually i'm the go-to guy for like a melody or a riff or something like that mm -hmm. yeah. um so yeah it's it's collaborative and there are lots of things that ronnie and i kind of figure out that as that we can play as you know either a, a pseudo horn section or him playing along with the guitar or vice versa okay um, so yeah i would say it's it's collaborative musically andrew um pretty much handles handles the lyrics um on okay. its own but we uh we actually experimented with a little songwriting section uh session during the last little weekend we had that was pretty fun ronnie's partial to uh donuts and we were trying to figure out some way to incorporate that in a uh in a way that wasn't so cliche into a a, a blues song there is a a famous uh, washboard sam song called who pumped the wind in my donut um but that's the only <laughs> one I know of. So, you know, let's we'll uh, we're trying to to crack that nut, but we'll see if that happens for the third album. Oh, okay, yeah, a song about donuts. Well, I yeah. could, yeah, you put the hole in my donut or something, right? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Well, there's there's you know the song the song could write itself, I suppose. But I, it, you know, it, Andrew has a Andrew has a, a variety of songwriting techniques and and practices that he uses. So we were just having some fun uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. with, with that um, to see what kind of nonsense we can come up with, but we'll see what happens. Well, I think that sometimes uh, there's a lot of singer songwriters I talk to who say they, they probably enjoy doing co-writes more so than, you know, just working individually, just simply because you can, you know, bounce ideas off of each other and uh, even, even, uh, you know, comebacks to certain lines and so on. Uh, yeah, even you know, just you, you saying know, something out loud helps, right? Like, you know, yeah. when you're by yourself, it sounds odd to talk to yourself. So, like, you can just write it by yourself, just say it out loud. Like, okay, well, that's not good. Yeah. I think you're more you're more apt to do that when you're writing with somebody else. Like, it's because you're yeah. already conversing. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that sounds like an interesting and creative way to work, though. I mean, to kind of come in and with a, a basic skeletal framework and then just uh, flesh it up, flesh it out, excuse me, uh, yeah. you know, together as a group. But um, you uh, probably also occasionally play some covers, I imagine. Uh, the Dig 3, actually, we have enough material now that we mainly play, that we have it, we've mainly, our shows are mainly originals. All originals, um, okay. But we do, we, ever since the first time we played together, we always begin the show with Willie Dixon's Wee Wee Baby. Um, mm, okay. Like from, from the version that it's like the live version from uh, live at Big Bill's Copacabana. I think, I don't know who's the lead on that, either Buddy Guy or Muddy Waters, but um, we, I don't know. It's just, it's always been a tradition of ours to, to do that. And I think it just helps. I think it, we just know already knowing what the first song is going to be kind of helps us all like get into the groove and just get it that way. It's a nice little warm up thing. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, um, and then um, we, if, if we need, uh, if we're doing like two or three sets, uh, maybe on the, towards the end of the second or the, or, or for most of the third, we'll do uh, some Elmore James, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of lends us our lineup kind of lends itself to that. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll keep it fairly low down and do that or, you know, if I'm going to sing some tunes, I'll probably stick with like, you know, your gut bucket kind of snooky prior kind of feel or mm -hmm. whatever. Ronnie sings a couple tunes too. He's he actually, when we kind of incorporate all of our original material, not necessarily just that with the dig three, but I produced an engine. Well, I engineered one of Ronnie's albums um, and then helped him produce another one. So he had 12, or let's see, so 10 original songs on that. So we can always pull from that too. Like I mm -hmm, mm -hmm. still know those songs. And actually one of them I, I perform myself because I like it a lot. And um, okay, 
But yeah, yeah, I would say mainly if you come to a Dig Three show, you're pretty much hearing originals, and you might not okay. hear everything on the record because we just might not get to it. Sure, because you've got that much material. Uh, well, yeah. when we talk about covers, you know, and you talk, what 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 t- typically draws you to someone else's song that makes you want to perform it? Um, usually the first thing that I kind of look for, um with a cover i don't know it just it depends if a lyric strikes me or uh these days it's kind of more well i guess i can't really i don't have a hard and fast rule for any of it sometimes mm-hmm. it's 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 the fans you know sometimes a fan will suggest a tune we'll look it up i mean mm-hmm. for me personally the most famous um or at least the most uh, i don't know how to put it but the the most uh, noteworthy uh request that i can pull off now so we had a fan um uh, when i was playing at house of blues regularly there was a fan that would come out and and she's now a friend of mine but she would always request or we got to talking one night and uh i I don't over the course of the conversation she said you know be kind of hilarious if you were able to rickroll the entire you know the house of blues and i said well be careful what you ask for you just might get it Mm-hmm. And it took me it took me three years, but I eventually did learn never going to give you up. <laughs> and if 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 prompted, I will do it. <laughs> so, OK, so, you know, and I actually enjoy it. And people never expect that. Like they never expect, you know, they go to a blues gig or whatever, or even like, you know, a, a, a restaurant gig with ambiance where there's blues music. They never expect to hear never going to give you up. So, yeah, that's uh you just there's there's no hard and fast rule, I guess is what I'm saying. And sometimes, sure. like like I mentioned before, like covers are project specific too. Like the Elmore James kind of lends itself to the lineup of the Dig Three. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also have a kind of a little a nascent uh, little duo project with Rodrigo Montavani, who plays bass for Nick Moss. Okay. And uh, we live we live in the same neighborhood in Chicago. We we used to live in the same building, um, but we have kind of done a couple gigs now where um i play resonator guitar and a little foot percussion and you know kazoo or harmonica and he'll play wash tip bass or tuba and um so we're we're in the process of assembling a repertoire for that uh that's old kind of more old 20s stuff and perhaps some original stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so in that in that case the project itself dictates the cover um, sure um so yeah it just well, Just unless you want, depends. unless you wanted to get really clever. Now I'm thinking about okay, like there's a, a bluegrass band called the Cleverlies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but what they do, they'll take a modern pop song, and oh, they'll okay. do it, and they'll do it like a bluegrass tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you AC know? Dixie or whatever they they do all the ACDC stuff. And yeah, yeah, bluegrass. yeah. Or there's uh, you know like a postmodern jukebox that'll take a modern pop song and do it like a '30s swing tune. You know that sort of thing. You know, you know maybe you could take a you know uh, uh, knock it on heaven's door or something. And do it like an old. Yeah, you know I, we could definitely pull that off. I mean, I might get the side eye from Rodrigo if I went all the way to, to never going to give you up, but yeah. Um, I, yeah, that appeals to me in some some fashion, but I think um, you know, for the most part, for that that particular lineup, we'll be sticking with the old stuff, and then sure. if there's some originals, it'll be more in the vein of of that. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, and of course, you know, if if, uh, if the old tip bucket is is ringing, anything can happen. Well, it's like <laughs> I've got a band. I've got a band. It's a trio, and it's it's mm-hmm. like we call it the Box Lunch jazz band okay. Bach as in okay. Johann Sebastian Bach's lunch, ah, right? very nice so the box oh, okay. yeah, there's a play on words and it's right. uh, uh I play trumpet and sing and then I have a tuba player mm-hmm. and a guitar player so it's just a trio and that's cool yeah and, and yeah and the way I promote it I said we just play music that's older than dirt and uh, <laughs> you know and that's what I look for I look for really old jazz tunes and blues tunes and things to to do and and uh and and stick with that repertoire because I think there's there's uh and my guitar player he got it he got so into it after he we started rehearsing he went out and bought a resonator guitar, you know. Oh yeah, so, cool. So yeah. he could play acoustically and still have that, you know, and I thought, well, that was great. There's a commitment for you. 
Um, yeah, I love I love that kind of a thing where yeah. you can go completely acoustic and, and not have to rely on amplification because a lot of that kind of I don't know, sometimes it's just it's too much. I mean, even the dig three did a gig did a gig recently where we rather than it was a fairly big room and rather than hiring sound, just kind of figured, well, you know, most of the gigs that we've done have been with hired sound and it's been a, you know, it's, it's, it's to play that we really want to play like the way that we did first starting out at Ronnie's backyard in August of 2020. And then, you know, in the studio, you know, in the studio, we don't even wear headphones. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To be able to play at that sort of very comfortable volume, it's like, it's kind of antithetical to using a professional sound system mm -hmm. because like the whole art, the whole aim there is to make things louder than they are which mm -hmm. you know is the point but at the same time like well i mean if i hit a snare drum acoustically you're you're gonna hear it in the back of that in the back of the room as long right. as there isn't another band playing at the same time so we just opted to do the sound ourselves and uh, it turned out really great i mean you know we got to just crank the guitar amps as much as we want and mm -hmm. you know and it was it was it was super fun so you know, I think, I think that uh, any time that you can have a little bit more creative control over the amplification is a good thing. Yeah, well, I, you know, and I look at it from just the standpoint of uh, I get tired of schlepping gear. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, you know, when I sometimes I'll, I get hired, you know, to be a hired to be a busker, you know, for like a, a, an event or something. Anytime, if I can pull that off with just, you know, uh, bring in the resonator and some something to stomp on, I'm, I'm happy. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, that's uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And this uh, your uh, uh, your kazoo and and uh, tuba group sounds like a lot of fun. That'll be that'll be interesting to hear. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, since we've been talking about gigs. What have been some of your most memorable gigs? Uh, not necessarily with the Dig Three, but it just you personally. Hmm. Um. Let's. So. Um. I guess I have to say. Um. In I think it was 2018. Well, yeah. I think both of them are probably in recent memory were on the the main stage of the Chicago Blues Festival. Okay. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2018. Corey Dennison Band opened up Friday Night's Festivities. And that was just wonderful. I mean, just to be on that beautiful stage and in front of all those people who were, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a huge stage, but it's also intimate enough and it's daylight that you can see the people that are, you know, up to a certain point, you can see faces and uh, of, people that are there and we had a lot of friends and family come out for that and that was just really great um you know people that might not we might not normally see in a club or or we only see once a year and so that was really great and then um mm -hmm. the next year unfortunately was the the tribute to mike ledbetter um who passed away um that was supposed to be his uh set there but instead um the city had mike welch put together a uh like kind of a, uh, a tribute band and actually Andrew Duncanson, uh, you know, from Dig three, uh, sang for that. Um, and then I played a second guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, that was really very memorable as well. And, uh, I think you could think you can see, do that one on, on YouTube. I think this okay. still has that up. Okay. Um, and I have to say every, you know, I've done now a handful of gigs up at the tonic, uh, in Milwaukee, um, hmm. both with, um, so basically Kurt Koenig and Matt Leibin have a little, they have one, so I think it's the second Sunday of every month and they put on a blues show and bring in different people to lead the band. And I've done it, I don't know now, maybe four or five times, uh, Michael Ledbetter, Andrew Duncanson, uh, Andrew Duncanson twice now, and then uh, the la latest one was with Corey, and it was it, there's such a great crowd out there, and it's such a good sounding room, and mm -hmm. um, it's uh, 
it's always a pleasure to play that one. Say that again. Where where was that again? I don't think I it came through real good. What was the name of the place in Milwaukee? The Tonic Tavern. Oh, the um, Tonic Tavern. Sure, sure. Okay. In um yeah. in Bayview in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh uh I've never been down there, but uh I uh its reputation precedes itself. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's really it's good. A fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are, you know, there are some other good rooms in the, uh, in, in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't have my finger on the pulse with really what the, you know, the blue scene is like in Milwaukee, but I, you know, I hear bits and pieces here and there and, uh, uh, like Dave Miller, who's a, a blues, uh, uh, harp player and singer that I, I've, uh, became acquainted with. And he's, uh, he does a good deal of playing around the city and in different venues. But um, mm. anyway, well, that's, uh, that's always good to know. Well, Jerry, I got a, I have another question for you. If uh, sure. you, you could perform with any artist you have never performed with either living or dead, who would that artist be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Um I'm going to go with, you know, maybe I can do two, one living okay. and one dead. But, um, but uh, I think I think actually getting together with Chris Stapleton would be pretty fun as far as, like, living um, artists go. I really appreciate his um, – he has – you know, I know he's kind of – they call him a country guy, but he pretty mm-hmm. much – I mean, he draws on a lot of different um, American influences, and, mm-hmm. I, you know, I love his songwriting and – and the recordings and everything, I think that uh, that would be a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, to see what, what would come out of that. And then as far as um, uh, people who've left us, um, I don't know, it'd be fun to play a gig with Willie Big Eyes Smith again. Um, but in terms of got, uh, somebody I've never met, um, uh, I guess I would have to say Fenton Robinson. Um, I really enjoyed his playing and singing. Uh, on record and, and anything that I can find by him. I always like it. I mean, I could go on, I, you know, as yeah. I'm saying, Fenton Robinson, as I'm saying Fenton Robinson, then I'm like, Oh no, Hound Dog Taylor, you know, like, you know, be, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, sure. Uh, sure. I think it would be fun to see that band. Uh, I've never, I never met any of those guys. So, yeah. Um, but uh, I probably wouldn't want to play with them. I'd probably just want to sit back and listen. Sit back and listen. Well, it's you know, it's always uh, it's always kind of interesting to think about. You know, I always I I always like to ask that question because I'm I'm interested in knowing what other people uh, uh, dream about or or fantasize about as far as their musical aspirations and and uh, you know, it's like. Uh, I can remember when I was younger, I always wanted to play with Stan Kenton and because mm-hmm. uh, I always admired his big band and and thought that was going to be a lot of fun. Of course, it never happened, but that's OK. I'm I'm still still there. And uh, it's it's always kind of a uh, kind of an interesting idea to think about, you know, what ifs and uh, mm-hmm. uh, like there was an album that came out. I can't remember how many years ago that was originally recorded. It was going to be Ray Charles with the Count Basie Orchestra. And they had everything. uh, Let's see. I'm trying to remember how this worked. Ray had recorded his stuff. And they hadn't quite put anyway through the magic of technology. They finally put this together and it was, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or when, uh, you know, uh, Natalie Cole, of course, would record those songs and have Nat King Cole right. with, you know, those kinds of things. So I guess, uh, you know, those kind of fantasy ideas of putting people together that, uh, uh, you know, what might have been or could have been so forth is always kind of interesting. But also just to, you know, know that you're, you know, breathing the same air and maybe on the same stage with someone who you've uh, really admired and and uh it's always kind of an interesting idea well i think yeah. that's uh yeah well uh jerry is i you know i think we've you know we've covered a good deal of ground but i always like to be uh 
as thorough as possible. And I know I'm not <laughs> perfect in, in asking uh, everything. So is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I think, I think we've pretty much, you know, like you said, we've, we've hit all the high points, I guess. I guess what you should know is that what everybody should know is that like live music is so important and, and uh, people, I think people got kind of a had were kind of complacent about it uh, prior to the pandemic. Of course, you always have people who are always going to come out their live music because you know they're wonderful and all that. But I think now there, at least in the last year and a half, there was a nice resurgence of interest in it simply because it you know it wasn't available for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope that that doesn't wane too much. I mean, with the advent of Social media, technology, TikTok, and all this—people are perfectly happy staring at their navels, you know, like around the house. But like, there's nothing, you know, you can't replace the feeling of actually being somewhere um, and experiencing the music the way an artist would like you to hear it live. Um, so I guess, I guess, what I would say to everybody is like, you know, you know, make 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 it a priority if you love music to come out and support your favorite artists and I, anybody from, you know, if you're going to go to a big show, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Taylor Swift or, or whatever, or, or just your local corner bar, like make it a priority and get out there um, and just, you know, support these artists doing what they're doing because, you know, it's not easy. Uh, it's getting harder. In fact, uh, you know, inflation is, 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 is a problem. <laughs> Gas is not getting any cheaper. Um, so if, if it, somebody you like is, is playing a show or somebody's coming into town, that's a mid-level touring band, you know, make an effort and, uh, get out of there and, you know, throw a 20 in the tip bucket if you can. Sure. Well, I think that's, you know, I, 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 I couldn't agree more with you. And I think that one of the things that, and certainly feel free to comment, um, <laughs> one thing that people who are not performers per se, or don't always understand is that perform at, from the standpoint of the performer, it's important to have an audience, not just from the, the financial support or the applause, but music is a communal experience and the performers feed off of it, just like the audience does. That's true. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've had some wonderful experiences in the studio, but it's rather sterile when you compare it to being in front of a live audience. Well, and the fact that, you know, you're witnessing something that'll never happen again is also Mm -hmm. special when you're in the studio, you know, this is something that's going to be, you know, uh, hopefully listened to again and again, when it's a live situation, um, you know, it's a, it's a, these notes are out there in the ether and maybe one day we can figure out how to metastasize and ions <laughs> in the ionosphere and bring back, you know, these sounds that have drifted off into space. Mm-hmm. But uh, as of right now, you know, each performance is a singular one, uh, yeah. unless you're dealing with techno, I suppose, but you know, um, yeah. So it, it's like, like you said, it's a community experience and it's not something that uh, you can replicate yet uh, with technology. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I, I hope that's a message that, that resonates loudly and strongly with, uh, with uh, everyone is how important it is to support live music. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Well, you know, anyway, would Jerry, thank you uh, so much for taking time to uh, talk with me today. And uh, I want to wish you and the Dig Three and all of your musical projects uh, all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Well, I appreciate that, Professor. And uh, it was really a pleasure talking with you. And perhaps we'll talk again after the next album's out in the world. Well, very good. All right. Will you take care? All right. You as well. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. My discovery composer of the week is Francesco Landini, born circa 1325. He died in Florence 
1397. Only a few dates relating to Landini's life can be established with any certainty. He was the son of the painter Jacopo del Cansentino. Francesco lost his sight in childhood during an attack of smallpox. As a result, he turned to music early in life. He mastered several instruments in addition to the organ. He also sang and wrote poetry. In addition, he worked as an organ builder, organ tuner, and instrument maker. According to Villani, he is supposed to have devised a string instrument called a sirenum. Landini took issue in the political and religious strife of his day. In view of all this, it is quite likely that several of the texts he set to music were in fact his own. It is highly probable that the composer spent at least some time in northern Italy before 1370, presumably in Venice itself. Evidence for this comes not only from the transmission of many of his works in northern Italian sources, but perhaps also from a single surviving voice of a motet, Principum Nobilissime, in which the author describes himself as Franciscus singing abroad, that is to say, far from his own country. This piece is addressed to the Doge of Venice, Andrea Cantarini. It is possible, too, that a motet, Marce Marcum Imitaris, addressed may be by Landini. There is at least nothing to rule out the possibility that this work, which perhaps owes something to the three-part madrigal style of Jacopo de Bologna. Research has produced evidence of Landini as organist at the Monastery of Santa Trinita in 1361, and as Capellinus at the Church of San Lorenzo from 1365 until his death. That Landini was on good terms with the Florentine Chancellor of State and humanist Coluccio Salutati is indicated by a letter of recommendation for Landini addressed to the Bishop of Florence and dated September 10, 1375. In 1379, Landini was involved in the building of the new organ in the church of San Annunziata, where he is also known to have been organ tuner. In 1387, Landini was involved in planning the new organ for Florence Cathedral. A vivid portrayal of his activities in Florentine society was painted by Giovanni di Prato in his narrative poetic account of Florence in 1389, Il Paradiso degli Alberti. The poet-composer emerges there as singer and organetto player and takes part in erudite conversations and discussions of philosophical and political matters. Landini died in Florence on September 2, 1397, and was buried there on September 4 in the Church of San Lorenzo. The All Music Guide lists 85 recordings of Landini's music. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video performance of Landino, Landini's Echo la Primavera, performed by Alchemy Medieval Music Ensemble. Well, that puts a wrap on episode number 139. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with New York City-based jazz pianist John Thomas. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based drummer, composer, and educator, Luca Santaniello, 
jazz vocalist Tana Alexa, blues singer and guitarist Andrew Duncanson, and jazz guitarist Nathan Borton. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have uh, questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at uwm.edu. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.